We are definitively finished with Stephen, including his funeral. We move on from Jerusalem and Judea now to Samaria, starting in Acts 8, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity." And Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, as we read the story of Simon and the evangelizing of Samaria, Give us the wisdom to understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Above all, help us to celebrate the reality that your Son rules and that he is bringing his scattered people back together into one kingdom, one people, with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Spirit. Father, thank you for our unity in the faith with the Samaritans today. And help us to continue to submit to the rule of your Son, that we might be united to all who are under his rule. Give us hearts to hear now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Samaria is the only region which is said to have received the word of God as a region. Luke doesn't highlight so much individuals receiving the word of God. He says in verse 14, when the apostles heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Now there's no note like that in the previous chapters. Judea had received the word of God. We won't see that in the following chapters. Rome had received the word of God. 
But here Luke comments that Samaria had received the word of God. What is he trying to say? Well, he's taking us back to that history of the ten tribes in Samaria versus the two tribes in Judah and that constant bickering, strife, civil war that existed between the two different groups of God's people. And he's saying, now, now that Jesus rules, his rule is bringing Samaria and Judah back together. God's two peoples are being reunited into one people of God, and it's happening through the proclamation of Jesus. So, all that history, all that bad blood, and there was a lot of bad blood, remember John 4, Jews have no dealings with Samaria. People would go out of their way to go around Samaria. Any Jewish person traveling from southern Israel up to the Jewish enclaves in northern Israel would not travel through Samaria because he didn't want to be associated with those people. Jesus, of course, blew that to bits, walked right through Samaria, sat and talked to a Samaritan woman, did all these things that his Jewish friends would have said were totally strange, unclean, unfit for a Jewish man to do. Jesus did. And here he brings his rule to Samaria. As you can see from the account in 2 Kings, the Samaritans were despised for a reason. They were syncretists. They claimed to worship the true God of the Bible. And at the same time, they built statues for all their other gods and worshipped those other gods. They were syncretists, not really Jews, not really Gentiles, and therefore equally despised and hated by both sides. Well, Philip doesn't believe in ancestral prejudice. Philip says, I'm not going to let the past determine this. God is doing something new in Jesus. Jesus is bringing the ancient promises of the prophets to pass. He is uniting the scattered people of God. So I'm going to go to Samaria and I'm going to preach Christ to them. Notice it says Philip went down to the city of Samaria. That's because Jerusalem is on a mountaintop. And anywhere you go from Jerusalem and Israel, you're going downhill. Samaria is north of Jerusalem, so we would think of going up to Samaria, but it's geographically at a lower elevation. So he went down to Samaria. What's the point of this passage? Well, that through evangelism, through the gift of the Spirit, Christ renews David's kingdom over Samaria, reuniting the people of God, and at the same time vanquishing spectacle and magic. Christ renews David's kingdom, reunites Judea and Samaria, vanquishes spectacle and magic. So first of all, we see this in just the summary, verses 5-8. through eight, Jesus brings joy to Samaritans. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached racial reconciliation to them. No, it doesn't. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and taught them their history and said, there's no need for us to have been fighting these last thousand years. We're actually on the same team, people. And that's not what Philip preached. Not only because that kind of stuff doesn't work, but because it wasn't really true. 
There was a reason that Jews and Samaritans fought each other. Before that, there was a reason that Israel and Judah fought each other. Philip goes and he addresses simply the present day reality. Jesus Christ lives. Jesus is Lord. Believe in Jesus. And they did. Right. Philip doesn't preach politics, economics, racial theories, sociology, psychology. He preaches Christ. And that is the thing that brings the Samaritans and the Jerusalem church together. That's what they have in common. What did William Faulkner say? The past isn't dead. It's not even past. And if you try to address somebody where there's a history of bad blood in the past, you'll quickly find out that it's not so much in the past as you might think. But Philip doesn't get into that. He simply says, now, today, this message is for you. It's the only ultimate solution. And Philip evangelizes not just with words, telling about Jesus, but also with power, healing people and performing exorcisms on many, healing many who are paralyzed and lame. Right? Two weeks after Philip's visit, you could go on the classifieds and you could find hundreds of free wheelchairs, free crutches. Don't need them anymore. That's what Philip did. Now, in the church today, to just address this very briefly, there's two different approaches to this ministry of healing. I would call them the errors of excess and the error of defect. The excess says every church needs to be involved in healing ministry. Every Christian needs to have the gift of healing. Well, that's excessive. Not every Christian had the gift of healing in the book of Acts. Not every Christian has that gift today. But there's also the error of defect that says no Christian ever should be healing anybody. Well, that's also not true. My roommate from seminary is an Indian gentleman, and I get his prayer newsletter from his ministry in India, and every month, he has the story of another person who has been converted because in desperation, they came, my child was sick, my wife was sick, my grandma was sick, something. They can't get any help from the Indian medical system and so they come to the Christians in their village and say, will you pray? And the Christians pray and that person is healed. And the whole family comes and joins the church. Now, I lived with this guy. He's telling me the truth. I'm not... It wouldn't be right to call him up and say, Santosh, stop it. Quit lying to me. None of these people are getting healed. Something else is happening. It's just pure coincidence. We don't want to sin by excess and demand that every church be involved in healing. We can't sin by defect and say that no Christian, no ministry, no church should be involved in healing. The answer is somewhere in the middle. I was thinking of it this way. Imagine a church on Nantucket. This church has a number of widows in it. The poorest of whom is worth $25 million. You visit this church and you look around and you say, man, there are a lot of widows in this church. You ask the pastor, does this church have a widow's ministry? The pastor says, no. And you say, you're a horrible church. You have so many widows and you do nothing for them. Well, that church has a different calling. It doesn't need to be involved in feeding widows. So it is in a country with a great hospital, 
wonderful medical care, most of the time the church doesn't need to be involved in healing people. First century Samaria did not have great medical care. And Philip does lots of healings, performs lots of exorcisms. And the summary, if you had to boil the effect of the gospel down to one word, what would you say? When the gospel comes, what's the result? Well, Luke calls it joy. There was great joy in that city. They were finally happy. They could finally rejoice. Life was finally looking up because Philip had come, healed a bunch of people, cast demons out of a bunch of people, solved a bunch of problems, was reuniting Samaria that had been at war with the rest of Israel for a thousand years, bringing it under the dominion of Jesus the rightful king. And not only that, there's also this one character who really stands out. This guy named Simon Magus. And Luke profiles him, I think, in order to give us some more insight into Samaria. What was Samaria like? Well, Samaria was spectacle-oriented. Simon is this sorcerer who has been in Samaria for a long time. And they are so impressed with him that they give him this absolutely insane title. This man is the great power of God. Not This man is marvelous and spectacular. This man has the power of at least ten demons. No, this man has the power of God. What kind of a title is that? What kind of city would give somebody that title? Because the weird part is, it seems that the Samaritans not only said this, but they actually believed it. This sorcerer, who can do these incredible things in his magic shows, is the power of God. So we look at this and we're like, wow, Philip, you went to Samaria to save these people? These people are gullible. These people will believe anything provided it looks cool enough. They believe, seemingly, that this magician is the power of God. Not that he has the power of God, not that he does cool stuff, but that he is somehow divine. Now before, before we jump too quickly on the Samaritans and their gullibility and their love for spectacle, we have to point out that our own society is in love with spectacle. Maybe more so than any society in the history of the world. The total amount of money spent on exploring for, drilling, refining petroleum in this country on an annual basis is around $100 billion. Roughly the same amount that's spent on content development by the major television and Hollywood studios. Yeah, that's right. We spend the same amount of money as a country on making cool TV shows and movies as we do on getting oil to power every rolling vehicle out there. I think we can safely say that spectacle is a big priority for us and that we spend lots and lots of money on it. We're like the Samaritans. We fancy ourselves to be very ungullible. And yet, 
no matter which side of any political debate you're on, we can agree that our country is flooded with what? Fake news. People who believe precisely the wrong thing about very important topics. Philip went down to Samaria. And Samaria was loaded with gullible, spectacle-oriented people who probably looked kind of a lot like contemporary Americans. Right? Samaria, home of syncretism. Oh yeah, we fear God. You ask him on a survey, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. And then you look at their life, what they spend on, what they value, what they enjoy, and you say, you're a Christian? Well, that's Samaria. Oh, I'm a Jew. I fear God. I believe in the Old Testament. Or they would just call it the Bible. And yet Philip goes, and what do they spend their time? They all pay attention to Simon the Sorcerer. He's the big kahuna in town. So Philip offers them, and this is the crazy part, Philip offers them better spectacle than Simon. When they believed Philip, or they heeded him, yeah, verse 6, the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. That verse sounds a lot like verse 11, and they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. In the mind of the Samaritans, Philip is another Simon, only better. Well, we've got a more powerful sorcerer. Except that when you watch Simon, you get entertained. When you listen to Philip, you get saved. And that difference starts to make itself manifest through the rest of the story here. Uh, Simon himself believes. The crowds get baptized as they watch Philip. Simon gets baptized, and then Simon, right, red flag, gloms onto Philip. He continued with Philip. He went everywhere with Philip. He won't leave Philip. He has nothing better to do. His life is as a professional showman. And so he sees this better showman, and he thinks, hmm, I could learn a thing or two from this Philip character. And Simon gloms onto Philip. And is constantly amazed. This professional magician is wowed. He was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Luke is not downplaying the spectacular side of the faith. He doesn't say Simon got converted and realized that Christianity is not that exciting. Simon got converted and the apostles told him, Go read these dusty books, think deep thoughts, learn tough theological things that will make your brain spin. They didn't tell him, break your addiction to spectacle by getting in touch with your cerebral side. It's not what they tell him. Instead, Philip says, yeah, come with me. Watch the amazing things I do. What can we take away for this? Well, there should be a place for amazement in your Christian life. If you live to be wowed, you're living for the wrong thing. But if there is no wow factor at all in your life, 
if you come to church, read the Bible, hear about Jesus, and are like, boring. Heard it before. Same stuff. There's a couple I know where when the man starts to talk, the woman will actually sit there and do this. Wave her finger around like, okay, I've heard this before. You can just be quiet now. Is that how we feel when we hear about what Jesus does for people? Are you excited when you hear how Philip came and saved Samaria? Are you excited when you read the Bible and see the mighty works of God? Simon was wowed. If you're never wowed, your faith is extremely shallow. If you know who Christ is, you will be amazed when you look at, when you examine, when you study, when you look into his work. So Samaria is spiritually awakened. Men and women are getting baptized. Simon is getting baptized. The apostles hear about it, send a delegation to come down, and through that delegation the Holy Spirit comes. Why? Well, some have suggested that Luke is saying, you get saved and then you have to get in touch with an apostolic leader who will give you the Spirit. It's not what Luke is saying. He shows us many individual conversions. None of them require a second dose of the Spirit later on. Rather, Luke is saying, this is the next phase of the mission. We were in Jerusalem and Judea. The Spirit came there on Pentecost Day. Now we're moving to Samaria. And Samaritans too can be saved. The Spirit is coming to them. And so Peter and John pray for them. The Holy Spirit falls on the Samaritans. If you have the Spirit, you have the Son, you have Jesus, you have the Father, and therefore, clearly these Samaritans are saved. They're not second-class citizens anymore. They are one and the same with the Jerusalem Christians. Praise God. Well, Simon gets to see this and he realizes this is what's behind everything Philip is doing. Right? He's a showman. He understands how the spectacle works, how the crowd comes, how you sell tickets. And he realizes everything that Philip does goes back to this one thing, the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the obvious solution? My business has completely flopped since Philip came to town because Philip has something way better than I do, namely the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Simon gets this bright little idea in his head. Let's buy the Holy Spirit. This is where all the magic comes from. All right, we can think of it today. Some Disney exec says... Pixar has had a lot of hits. Let's buy Pixar. That's literally how Simon makes this decision. That Holy Spirit, he can do cool stuff. Let's buy him. So he approaches the apostles and says, how much? How much is the Holy Spirit? And Peter goes off on him. Your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Right? You and your money 
can go to you know where. Thus says the apostle to him, Simon has totally misunderstood the nature of the miraculous spectacle associated with the Christian faith. Right? And so have we if we come to the conclusion that the faith is just about cool stuff happening and the Holy Spirit mostly exists to entertain us. This is an error that Luke has talked about before. That Jesus did many miracles. And Herod the king finally got that interview with him the night before he's crucified and is so excited. It's Jesus. Man, I've been wanting to see a miracle for years. And Jesus won't do any miracles for him because Jesus is not Penn or Teller or David Copper. He's not a professional showman. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Same with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit actually helps people. He heals. He performs exorcisms. He saves. But he is not in show business. That's not what the Holy Spirit is for or what he does. Simon didn't understand that, and so Peter rebukes him, really on four separate counts, the first of which is the sin that the church has later dubbed simony, after the name of Simon, trying to buy the gifts of God. God gives it for free. You want to monetize it. How do we do this? Well, the name in the past, one of the most common instances of this was trying to buy church office. I'll purchase ordination. I'll buy my way into the pastorship at a big church. Or, of course, in Italian politics in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, I'll buy a cardinalship. I'll buy myself the papacy. And for enough money, you could. There was even an office in Rome at the Roman church where... They had the prices for various offices listed on the wall, and you could go in and hand over your money and gain this spiritual office. Well, obviously nobody in this room is tempted by that particular sin. How are we guilty of buying God's gifts? Well, there are so many ways. The most obvious one is looking for God's favor in some sense, through money. I'll put more in the offering plate. Then God will be pleased with me. I will give a lot of money to a wonderful charitable cause. And then my conscience can be clear. Right? I feel really bad because of that bad thing that I did. I made a mistake and I harmed a child, so I'm going to give a lot of money to a children's charity. I made a mistake and I harmed a woman, so I'm going to give a lot of money to a women's charity. This is just pretty common. You know, it's well known in relationships. As a guy, this has happened to me. I go into the store, I buy a dozen red roses. Somebody sees me at the checkout and jokes with me, oh, what'd you do this time? I didn't do anything. I just love my wife, okay? Buying God's gifts with money. A clean conscience to think that you can have it for money. A sanctified heart to think that you can have that for money. Joy in the Lord to think you can have that for money. That's exactly what Simon 
was thinking. Any one of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, think you can have that for money. Right? The clearest way I can say it is the way Frankenstein's monster said it. Make me happy and I will be good. Make me happy and I will be good. Right, folks, how much of our sanctification is money? If the water, sewer, power, and electricity turned off, all the things we have that our vast wealth has bought us, cars so we don't have to walk, furnaces so we don't have to chop wood, if all of those things went away, how grumpy would you be? How angry and upset, how dissatisfied and complaining would your life become if the things that your money has purchased for you went away? Right? How much of our sanctification is actually just wealth? That's the sin of simony in our lives. To think, I'm richer, therefore I'm a better person. I have plenty of food and therefore I don't have to be hangry. I have plenty of money and therefore I can buy a car that works and I don't have to be frustrated with a vehicle that breaks down. There's nothing wrong with eating enough and driving a reliable car. But the day you mistake that for sanctification, the day you mistake that for the work of the Holy Spirit turning you into a holier person is the day that you've fallen into the sin of simony. Buying the gift of God with money. Peter goes on, right? That's just the first blast. Verse 21, You have neither part nor portion in this ministry, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Peter says, Simon, ticket sales are not the issue. The ability to do amazing things on stage is not the issue. What God cares about is your heart. How's your heart? Well, I'll tell you, your heart is rotten. Your heart is wrong before God. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, and your heart definitely has a problem. You can't be engaged in ministry. You can't put the Holy Spirit on people when your heart is in the wrong place. And of course, where's Simon's heart? Simon's heart is on stage, in the ticket booth, in the box office, with the crowds. He wants the ability to sell spectacle. Peter says, no, 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 no. That's not what you need, Simon. Christian faith is a heart religion. It's about the condition of your heart. That doesn't mean how your heart feels. Oh, I feel like I love Jesus today. That means what your heart desires. Does my heart want to do the right thing? And by that I mean, am I doing the right thing? Does my heart want to obey God? By that I mean, am I keeping the Ten Commandments? That was the test for Simon's heart. And obviously, Simon was not keeping the Ten Commandments. He was not loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was worshiping his real God, which was money and spectacle. And Peter, therefore, says, your heart is 
in the wrong place. Here's how to get it in the right place. And he doesn't just denounce him. He offers him hope. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. How do you get your heart in the right place? Repent and pray. What is repentance? It means turning around. Thinking again. Right? That's what re means, to do it again. And pent means to think. To repent is to think again, to turn around, go the opposite way from the way you were going before. Simon, repent of asking to buy the Holy Spirit and ask God to forgive you. That's how you get your heart in the right place. Because I see, Peter goes on, you are poisoned by bitterness, bound by iniquity. Simon, you're held by this bitter root of idolatry. Where does this language come from? Well, Deuteronomy 29, Moses said, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman, a family, a tribe, whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. What's the bitter root? It's idolatry. Right? Worshipping money, worshipping entertainment. Simon would do that. We would never do that. Right. Oh, wait. If you live for money, if you live for entertainment, spectacle, being wowed, being amazed, then you are where Simon was, poisoned by bitterness, bound by iniquity. That idolatrous root has sprung up in your heart. Is it okay for Christians to be entertained? Sure. It's even okay for Christians to be entertaining. But if we live for entertainment, if entertainment has become your God, as it had become Simon's God, your heart is in the wrong place. You are committing the sin of what I'm calling magical thinking. Simon thought money conferred spiritual benefits. If I have a lot of money, I'm a better person than those that don't. Especially if I extend it to non-financial goods. I have a lot of family love and care. You don't. I'm better than you. My parents took better care of me when I was little, so I'm more mature and more gracious. Therefore, I'm better than you. That's how Simon thought. That is what Peter denounced in him. Simon lived for cool stuff and amazing things. And he thought that that's what the apostles were about too. Don't do it. It's not what the Christian faith is about. And so the great power of God is left utterly powerless. Simon doesn't say, yeah, I'll repent, I'll pray. He just says, you'll have to pray for me. I can't even do what you recommend I do. The great power of God is utterly powerless by the end of the story. Jesus has vanquished spectacle and magic. Rather than opening up a new way of being Christian, a, a magical way, Simon is left kind of as this carcass beside the highway of Christ's conquering kingdom. He thought he was the great power of God, but he can't even pray. All he can do is say, pray for me. 
The truth is that if we think our money makes us super Christians, we're in for a rude awakening. Like Simon, we'll see that the power was not spiritual power, it was pocketbook power, and if something happens to the bank account, the power is gone. Money isn't Jesus. Don't make it your God. Don't think that it will save you. It won't, and it definitely won't control the real God. Simon thought it could. Simon is reduced to this mess, this powerless individual. So what's the final word? They testified, preached the word of the Lord, they preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Samaria is being brought back under the rule of the Messiah. Being united with the Jerusalem church as one kingdom, one people, under God. Not under magic and spectacle. The promises are fulfilled through the expansion of Christ's reign. Spectacle and magic have been beaten. Jesus reigns. That's what happened in Samaria. And that will happen here too. If we submit ourselves to the rule of Christ. If we obey Him, believe Him, trust Him, walk with Him. That's what Philip preached. That's what changed Samaria from being this gullible, spectacle-oriented, money-driven place into a new outpost of the kingdom of Jesus. Believing Jesus, trusting Him, obeying Him. Let's pray. Father, give us this heart religion. Forgive us for trusting in our money and for mistaking it for spiritual power. Help us, Lord, to truly repent of our sin of money worship and help us to submit to your Son as the true God, the one who can truly and really take care of us in a way that money never has and never can and never will. Lord, we thank you for Philip and his ministry in Samaria. And we pray for every church that you would help us to proclaim Christ. Help us to believe your Son, we pray in his name. Amen.